seated. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be uh, going through the series about Jesus the Tabernacle, and so looking at different aspects of that tabernacle and how Jesus is connected to that. And so in order to get this all going, we actually want to look at the tabernacle structure itself. Um, and so what I want to do is go to uh, Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9, um, and I'll read this for you. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you, so you shall make it. Um, chapter 26 and following then give uh, these very uh, minute details in regards to the tabernacle and its setup and its structure and all kinds of things, and you can get into that and read that, and it's just very interesting to see all those minute details of what's going on there. Um, but there's two things I really want to point out in regards to what we see up here. The first thing was, is that to build this tabernacle and with all the furniture and everything else with it, it was really expensive. Really expensive, right? You see all the stuff uh, up there that they required in order to build it with the gold and the silver and the bronze, but also the fine linens and all that kind of stuff too, which were really pricey and expensive at that time. The other thing, too, that I want to zero in on is verse 8, which says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Right? The whole purpose of the tabernacle is so that God may dwell in their midst. And, and that's why the tabernacle was to be built with expensive items and, and what have you. Because it was to be an earthly reflection of the glory that is God himself, Right? that we see um, a symbol and an ongoing symbol and that, and that Israel would see that as a daily object, really, in regards to God and his glory and his power and his magnificence and what have you, and that glory and that power and that magnificence that was among them each and every day that existed in the midst of their camp. And in fact, the way the camp was established and set up was that the tabernacle was in the middle, and the tribes actually established themselves, and they had locations of where they, they planted their tents and what have you around that tabernacle. But um, I want to look back a little further, though, um, and I want to talk about that core aspect about building the tabernacle, which was all about God dwelling with his people. And going back to the past, we realize that um, this is meant to be an echo of Genesis, right? Genesis in the garden where God dwelt with his people. And I'm showing you Genesis 3.8 and also Leviticus 26.12 because the Hebrew word that gets used there in both accounts with God walking right, is the same Hebrew word. And in the Leviticus account, it's actually talking about the tabernacle. And I think that's so cool that there's this echo there back to the garden, just the way that God had dwelt in that intimate relationship with Adam and Eve, so God seeks to also dwell with his people 
by means of the tabernacle. And that's not the only uh, text we want to look at in regards to this. Uh, Genesis 2.15 and Numbers 3, 7, and 8. Um, it's, not, it's not directly noticeable in regards to the English here, but the way that Adam and his work is described in Genesis is the exact same Hebrew words that are used describing the work of the priests in the tabernacle. And this has led a lot of scholars, and I, and I tend to go in this direction myself, to say Adam was functioning as a priest. We should be looking at the garden itself as a temple, and, and I don't think that's just a stretch given the fact that that's where God dwelt with his people, and Adam functioned as that priest with God, right? And think about that garden, though, for a moment, right? Adam and Eve got to have that direct contact with God in the garden. But we know all of that was lost because we go to Genesis 3, and because of the nature of sin in the world, that all disappears. Um, I love this illustration of the tabernacle, um, and you can see the fiery pillar and, and what have you in regards to all that. Um, here's the thing, though, that I, that I love and I love and I love and I see in the Bible, is that despite the fact of, of humankind's sinfulness, right, despite the fact of Adam and Eve um, breaking God's uh, commandment and them getting kicked out of God's presence, really, God still seeks to want to dwell with his people, okay? And, and that's something that we have to remember, that God still seeks to dwell with his people and that God makes a way to dwell with his people. Um, we remember the story in Genesis 11 about how uh, sinful humanity tries to bring God down to them, and that's not how you, how you deal with things, and so God confused their language. It's God's uh, way and in, in his desire of how he's going to dwell with his people. And so we see the tabernacle gets established, but now the tabernacle is established in such a way that has laws and regulation that you don't have that direct access to God like they did in the garden, right? And who had access also to was limited. If you were, remember your Old Testament, and if you remember Old Testament class, maybe core theology, this was brought up, or maybe Sunday school, vacation Bible school, whatever, about that once a year, right, it was the high priest that actually entered in the Holy of Holies. And that was a big deal, right? He had to make atonement even before he himself went in the Holy and Holies to, to be there in the presence of God. And I'm sure that was a very frightening affair to be in that presence. But again, despite the fact that now, because of human, human sin, that there are these regulations and now there's, there's really boundaries in regards to God and how you were to address him and how you were to deal with him and how you were to come into his presence in regards to Exodus and, and we see in the Old Testament, we still remember that God wants to be with his people, right? God wants to dwell with his people. This brings us to this text in John 1. Um, let's go ahead and let me get there in my notes first. Let's read that together. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, last Thursday, if you were in chapel, um, uh, Pastor Glenn Shelton talked about those first few verses in Genesis 1, right? And you might be familiar with those. Verses that are also echoing back to Genesis, right? Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, we're, and the Word was God, right? 
And now we go forward to, to verse 14, and we see that very same word now comes to take on flesh and dwell among his people. Now, this word that gets used in Greek for dwelt um, is skeneo, um, is the root word. And actually, it means to tabernacle. And in this case, though, it's past tense, so it means to, that he tabernacled with his people. God uh, was intentional in his inspired words to John to use that word, right? There's meant to be, when you read that, a linkage to think back to the Old Testament, to think back to the tabernacle and how that was God's means by which he sought to dwell with his people. But now we see this amazing new way in which God seeks to dwell with his people, right? God takes on the, on the tent of human flesh to be with his people. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Remember what I said in regards to the tabernacle and that you know, there were regulations in regards to who could approach God and how they could approach God and what have you in regards to, especially with the priests. Jesus comes in the flesh right? And it's not just priests who can approach Jesus, but it's all kinds of people. And we, and we read in the gospel just wonderful stories about how even people themselves reach out and touch Jesus, right? Now, that was a big no-no back in the Old Testament, especially we see in regards to the Ark of the Covenant. There's a whole story about, a, about how the Ark of the Covenant starts slipping when they're, when they're uh, um, carrying it to a different location, and a soldier tries to stop it from slipping, and he touches it, and that's the end of him, right? God's holiness, but now we see that glory and that holiness that's there in human flesh. And I love, too, the fact that the word tabernacle gets used here, because the tabernacle was that mobile temple, that mobile tent that went with the Israelites, right, through the wilderness that went with the Israelites in the promised land. And I love that image because that's what Jesus is, right? He, he is that mobile tent, that tabernacle, that temple, so to speak, that he moves about the wilderness and the promised land and in all of Israel and Judea and the Galilee and everything in order to be with his people in this very powerful, very special way. Um... We read, though, in John that he talks about how we've seen the glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And while Jesus is indeed full of glory because he's God, here's the thing. To look upon him in this human tent of flesh wasn't immediately to see that glory, right? Think about, think about the tabernacle, and I talked about all the expensive material and those kinds of things. That was a kind of a um, symbolism, a physical symbolism of God himself and his glory, right? As you see the glittering of all the jewels and the, the precious materials and those kinds of things that were used. But we're reminded in Isaiah 53, which is this very powerful description of Jesus. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. To look upon Jesus was not to recognize, there's the glory of God, right? It's not like Jesus walked around Israel and there was this bright beam of light that emanated down upon him or emanated from him, other than the transfiguration account, right? Uh, which was briefly occurred there. But 
to look upon him was to look upon just probably any other just normal-looking Jewish male at the time. Uh, unlike those paintings we see, right, with the halos of Jesus, it's not like he walked around with that. There was nothing about him that attracted him to people. This reminds me of uh, Thor from the Marvel movies, uh, Chris Hemsworth. Have you seen those movies? Especially the first movie, right? They're just, the women are ogling him, right? The God of Thunder, yeah, right? And how he looked, and, and uh, as one uh, family member of mine says, um, he's quite pleasant to look at. <laughs> right? And it's interesting to think about those ancient gods and, and goddesses because we see depictions of those even in Greek and Roman thinking that they were depicted as, um, as beautiful beings that reflected the beauty of the time and the culture. And yet, that's not what we see with Jesus. In fact, we even see hints of something more in regards to Isaiah 53 about being despised, right? And they esteemed him not. And I think of Holy Week, right? And I think of Good Friday. And I think of him being beaten and how they mocked him. John chapter 12 also gives us another interesting hint about this glory that we see. And it comes from Jesus' own words. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is telling us something really profound here. That to, to see the glory of God is actually to see Christ crucified. That's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. To look upon a cross and to see a man bleeding and dying in agony and pain and, and the ugliness of that, right? And, and we see this echoed even further in Isaiah 53. That's where John says to see God's glory in that. And Christ crucified. The glory, therefore, of Jesus, the tabernacle, is found not in his outward appearance. It's found in the tent of his flesh that has taken on human sinfulness. The sinfulness that he takes the cross for us. Here's something I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to come back every week. I want to encourage you to really take time to think through and ponder this idea of Jesus the tabernacle as it really gets us to think even deeper upon the incarnation of Jesus. Um, and think about what that means. And I want to leave this last quote for you as you think about this. I love this quote from Michael Horton, who's a theologian. And it's a challenge for us where he says, do I define the Jesus story or does it define me? And when you come each week, I want you to ask that question. How does this Jesus story, how does this teaching of Jesus, the tabernacle, and all the richness and the depth that's there, how does that seek to define me? What's it saying about who I am? What God has done for me and what God is calling me to be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Back before time began, you had a plan. A plan to create and dwell with your people. 
While we have sought to foil your plans, you have not abandoned us. Rather, through history, you have always sought to be with your rebellious people. We praise you for sending your Son to tabernacle with us, taking on the tent of flesh, being crucified, rising again, and ascending in that flesh. Forever you are incarnated in our image, so that in dwelling with us, we may be able to dwell with you for eternity. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray, and all God's people say, Amen.